We talked about last week, Scripture alone. And when we say that, we mean that Scripture is our ultimate authority. That for all of the other authorities that are good in this life, for all of the other authorities that we are to submit ourselves to, Scripture stands over all of them. And that was a challenge in uh, Martin Luther's day because the church had positioned itself over the Bible. And one of the things that the reformers fought back against, fought for, was to say that, no, 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 the Bible stands over the church. It is our ultimate source of authority. It has the first and the last word. And then the next three all kind of go together. They deal with what it means to be in relationship with God, what it means to, and to use Christian terminology, what it means to be saved. And so... We say uh, salvation is by grace alone. That means that it comes from God. It doesn't come from us, that God is the one who seeks us. And so salvation is his prerogative. It is by grace alone. And it comes to us in the person of Christ alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That There is no other savior. There is no other mediator. No one else can stand between God and man, but the God man himself, Jesus. So grace alone in Christ alone. And then what we're going to talk about today is uh, how we receive that gift and we receive it through faith alone, through faith alone, not through faith plus my work, not through Faith plus what the, the church uh, offers me in terms of a, a, of a treadmill of good things to do, but through faith alone. And we're going we're gonna to unpack that today. And then the, the final solo that we'll look at at the very end of this month on Reformation Day is all of this is to the glory of God alone. But today we're going to talk about faith. Next week, uh, Neil is going to preach and he's going to talk about Christ. And then in two weeks... We're, um, the pastor from our sister church in Calera, Jeff Guinan, is going to come and he's going to preach on grace. And I'm actually going to his church. We're doing a little pulpit swap uh, since we were doing the same series. And so that just kind of gives you a framework for what to expect over the next couple of weeks. Today, faith. Next week, Christ. And then the week after that, grace. So all of that said... We are going to be in Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the rack in front of you. You'll find our passage on page 941. Romans three nineteen through 26. Let's give attention to God's word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big, odd word. We're going to unpack that. We're going to define it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sons. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. God of mercy and grace. We thank you for gathering us. In the midst of the storm, and not just the storm that rages outside, but the storm that rages in our culture, the storm that even rages in our own hearts, oh Lord, that you would be our mighty fortress, our bulwark never failing. God, would you open our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts to receive your good word this morning. Give us life and truth in the place of lies and death. Would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Young Martin Luther was a law student. Uh, That was the family business. That's what his father wanted him to do. So he went to law school. Uh, And as he was finishing it up, one uh, one day he was traveling. And in the course of his travels, he just happened to be traveling during a storm. What do you know? Right? Uh, And a lightning bolt struck a tree near Martin Luther. And as you can imagine, it terrified him. He was terrified by the storm. And so he prayed and he made a vow. He said, God, if you'll get me through this, I will become a monk. Because if you were going to give yourself to God's service that day, if you were going to make a full out dedication, that's what you did. You became a monk. So that's what Luther did. He, he made this vow. God got him through it. And so he decided to become a monk. But in the course uh, of his monkhood, in the course of his time as a monk, the more that he, uh, the more time that he spent in the monastery, he realized that he did not love God. In fact, he realized that he hated God. Now, you remember, we said this, uh, I said this last week, that it was a, it was a crime at that point in time for the scriptures to be translated into common languages like German. Martin Luther was German. It, it was, it was sacred scripture, and therefore it had to remain in uh, Latin. And so Martin Luther didn't actually know all that much about God. If your Latin was rusty, you didn't know your Bible. And so Martin Luther realized in the course of his stay at the monastery that he actually hated God. Because there was this burning question. This was the question for Martin Luther on which his life turned. This burning question was, how can a sinful person be made right before a holy God? That's a great question. Uh, 
It's a question that I've wrestled with. I hope it's a question that you've wrestled with because it's the question you have to answer. How can a sinner be made right before a holy God? And it was in the course, Martin Luther would discipline himself, he would beat himself, he would do all the things that monks were supposed to do, and yet he did not find himself satisfied and he found himself angry at God. And so his superior... Uh, told him he needed to go do more studies, right? Because when you reach a dead end, you go get another degree. So that's what Martin Luther did. Um, and it was in the course of his studies that he was told that he, he was to study the book of Romans. And it was in the book of Romans that he happened upon Romans 1.17. I'm going to start reading in verse 16, but this is, this is what Luther stumbled upon as, he, as this question burned within him. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So just pausing real quick, Paul says that the good news is that God, that the gospel is the power of God to save everybody, Jew and Gentile. Everybody on the face of the planet can be saved through the gospel for in it, verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith. Some say beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, and this was the phrase that that both undid Martin Luther and remade him at the same time. The righteous shall live by faith. You understand that in Martin Luther's day, that was not how that blank would be filled in. In Martin Luther's day, and still in our day, what we tend to think and what the church has taught, and if you look at official Roman Catholic doctrine, still teaches, the righteous shall live by works, by a combination of faith and works. In fact, to be justified, to be made right with God in Roman Catholic teaching means that you have to cooperate with the church and its sacramental system, right? That you, you do things the right way. So you pull these levers, you push these buttons, and if you do that repeatedly over time, you will be justified. You will be made right with God. That was what Luther struggled with so much. And to be honest, it's not just Roman Catholics who do that. It's just about everybody. That is our, that is our default mode. And we're going we're gonna to get into that in just a little bit. But... When Martin Luther read this passage and meditated on this passage, he says the doors of heaven swung open because he realized that to be made right with God is not, does not come from us, but it is, it is, and it is, it is not earned through works or merits or sacraments or anything else. It is received by faith. And that was a game changer. And so we're going we're gonna to look at Romans 3 to figure out what that means. What does it mean that, we, that our salvation comes through faith, that we're justified through faith? We've got a lot of words to define and unpack. But here's the main idea. We are made right with God only through faith in Christ. That's the faith alone, faith only. We are made right with God only through faith, and not anything that we add. 
We're going to look at this in three ways. First, we're going to look at our problem, the problem that we have. Second, we're going to talk about God's solution, the solution that God provides. And then finally, the way that we receive that. So the problem that we have when it comes to being made right with God. Two, how God fixes our problem. How, what, what solution does God provide for that? And then finally, how we receive that solution. So let's first, let's talk about our problem. Now, maybe the first question you ask is, why do I even need to be made right with God? Why does it matter? I mean, I'm not a bad person. I'm not Hitler, right? God's, God's a pretty understanding chap, probably. And so I should be fine as long as I do my best and work hard and be real. Why do, I, why do I need to be made right with God? I'm doing fine on my own. And there's a, so there's, there's a couple of different ways you can begin to answer this. And, and for, especially for my older friends in here, the answer is provided through morality. If I will just be the best that I can be, if I will just do the best that I can, if I will just do good and, and be honest, then God will... God will make up the rest, right? God will fill in the blanks and we're all hunky-dory. So I, this, is, this is the version that says, if I just, if I just do my best, then God, will take, then, then God will take care of me. For my younger friends, millennial and down, morality has been replaced by authenticity. I just need to be real. If I'm just an authentic person... I don't want to be fake. If I'm just if I'm just real, if I'm the if I'm the if I'm just me, the best me that I can be, then God will then then, then God will take care of me. God will, God's an understanding guy. He'll understand that. And then for my hippie friends in the middle, you know, it's um, just be nice and love people, right? If I just be nice and love people, then uh, then God will take care of the rest. But I, I want you to see that. Though those, those, are, those are three different versions of the same song, right? The song is the same, and that song is Sola Bootstrappa, right? Not Sola Fide, Sola Bootstrappa, right? That if, that if I just do my part, God will do His. If I just live up to my standard or aim to, as best I can to live up to His standard, then, then God will cover me, right? Then I'll be covered, so let's see if that works, right? All, all three of those positions are really the same one, and it's a position that seeks to justify itself. I'm going to make myself right before God, all right? I'm going to justify myself before a holy God. So the question is, does it work? Will any of those verses of that song clear you? And... Fittingly enough, that's what Paul has been talking about for two chapters leading up to Romans 3. So let's just look at a few verses in Romans that might answer that question for us. Can I justify myself? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, well, maybe I don't fit into that category. But I see that God's wrath is against unrighteous, ungodly people. So maybe, but maybe, just maybe, that doesn't apply to me. Flip over to Romans 2, 11 through 13. 
Remember that in Paul's world, there's this divide between Jews who had the Old Testament and Gentiles who did not. Paul's letter here bridges that gap. 2.11, for God shows no partiality for all who have sinned without the law, that's Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that's Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, let's stop right there. Paul makes a very important, he lays out a very important principle on which the entire justice system hangs. The doers of the law will be justified. Look, if you, if you don't want to get on the wrong side of a judge, all you have to do is keep the law. Right? As long as the judge is just, not corrupt, right? Just keep the law and you're good. Right? That's, that's, that is a key principle of justice. It's how the world should work. It's how the world does work, hopefully, often, right? So that's a, that's a key principle. The doers of the law will be justified. Now we have to figure out, what you have to figure out and I have to figure out is, am I a doer of the law? All right? Neil actually read part of this passage. Paul quotes uh, lot, from lots of different places in the Old Testament. One of those is Psalm 14. I'm just going to give you a snippet from, uh, from Romans 9. Uh, excuse me, Romans 3, verse 9. Paul says this. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So if the doers of the law will be justified, and yet I stand condemned under the law, that means I'm not a doer of the law. But to make it abundantly clear, this is what Paul says in our passage today, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. When I read that, of course, I think about my own, my own youth, but my children in particular, right? You, you've been in that position where you say, hey, you cannot hit your sister. But, 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 right? Um, no, you can't take the cookies out of the jar. But, but, but. You're, or let's think if you're an employee at work, right? I need that project done by Tuesday. But, but, but. Right. We always we always have something to say. There's always something we want to add. We always want to justify ourselves. And what Paul says is that when the law speaks, there are no more. But but buts. Right. When the law speaks, our mouths are stopped. And we are held accountable. We are laid bare before God. We are shown to be what we really are. That is how piercing and bright And holy God's law is. No one is righteous. No, not one. And so, under the law's diagnosis, I am not a doer of the law. I am a breaker of the law. And my guess is that you know that. My guess is that you feel that in your own heart. You know how you fall short. Every mouth may be stopped. God's word has the last word. 
Verse 20. For by works of the law, by keeping the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's define a couple of words. Justified. He says no human being will be justified in his sight. What does it mean to be justified? In Paul's day, justified is a court term. And it means to be declared. In our day, it would be not guilty. It's not a process. That's what Rome taught. Rome taught that justification was a process over time which you were made you were justified. That's not that is that is not justification in Paul's day. In Paul's day, justification was a one-time verdict. Right? The judge reviewed the case, he looked at you and he said, "Righteous. Not guilty." Paul says, "No one will be declared righteous. No one will be made right with God." By keeping the law. What does the law do? It's where we need to define our next word. It says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is, what is sin? Sin means to miss the mark. We have some bow shooters, probably, uh, probably some hunters in here. So you know, if you're, if you're human, you know what it means to miss the mark, right? In Paul's day, uh, in an archery competition... Uh, if you were to shoot at the target and you were to and you were to miss, there would be someone on the other end. The judge on the other end would shout out sin. You miss the mark. And when you miss the mark, you fall short of the prize. You don't get the prize if you miss the mark. Right. If you miss the deer, you don't get the prize. You just make a lot of noise and the deer runs off into the woods. All right. So the sin is to miss the mark and. Paul takes that term and he uses it in our relationship to God. Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned and fall short, come up short uh, on the glory of God, fall short of the glory of God. So let's put it all together for our question. How can a sinner be made right with a holy God? Paul says no human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law because the law shows you your sin. So if I'm going to if I'm going to show up before the judge as one uh, as one rich young man tried to do before Jesus, right? This guy comes before Jesus and he says, uh, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And this guy says, OK, which ones? And so Jesus unpacks what we call kind of the second table of the law. Uh, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Right. All of the all of the commandments that deal with your neighbor. This guy was pretty bold. I'm not sure I would say this. This, this, guy, this guy said, huh, all that I've kept from my youth. What do you know? I've done all of those things. So Jesus, knowing, of course, that this young man had not done all of those things, said, well, then sell all that you have and follow me. And it says he went away sorrowful because uh, he had great possessions. Jesus used the law to target that where that man, that man's heart really was, right? And if we're honest with the law and we stand before it, at some point it's going to show us how we come up short. That's what the law is intended to do. So no human being will be justified by works of the law. Here's what this means for us. Is morality what you're putting your stock in? You can't be moral enough. 
Justice, social justice even, is that what you're putting your stock in? You can't be just enough. Goodness. I want to be nice. I want to be loving. I want to be real. You can't be nice enough. You can't be loving enough. You can't be real enough. So here's our problem, my problem, and your problem. We're sinners. And we cannot make ourselves right before a holy God. So, what does that mean then for us? If I, as Paul says in Philippians 3, if, there's, if I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, then how can I be made right with God? And that's where God provides the solution. Take a look at verse 21. But now... You hear that? I want you to I want you to think of that part in the story where the battle is almost lost. Everything looks really grim and then reinforcements come charging over the hill. Or if you're a sports guy, that moment when your your quarterback, your winning quarterback from last season goes down. And it looks like the rest of the season's going to be a ruin. And then when you put the backup in, you realize he's better than the guy that just went down. But now Paul says there's a game changer. I don't have a righteousness of my own. My righteousness is a complete and utter sham. It's revealed to be sin. What am I going to do? Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. I can't keep the law. I need righteousness from somewhere else. Paul says, great. That's where it comes from. It comes from somewhere else. It's not, it's, it comes apart from the law. Then he says, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Law and the prophets is the shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament. He says, this is not something just completely out of the blue. This is not something, you know, that God didn't plan for until right just now. No, this is, this is talked about in the Old Testament. It's just veiled in mystery. But now we have the curtain thrown open. Now we have the mystery revealed. Now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Tell me What is it? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So where does our, what is our hope? Where does this saving righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus. Let's keep going. For all have sinned. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've seen that. And are justified, declared righteous, declared right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, let's talk about that term redemption. We've, before this series, we've been going through Exodus. Redemption is a big word in that book. To be redeemed means to be ransomed. It means to be bought out, right? It means to be rescued from bondage when somebody pays a price for you. So Paul says that we are justified through redemption, through being paid for in Christ Jesus. We are declared right with God in Christ Jesus. I don't want to preach too much of Neil's sermon. because He's going to focus on the person and work of Jesus. But this, this word focuses on our bondage to sin and how God's grace releases us from it. But it means somebody has to pay. Redemption means a price has to be paid. And the person who paid that price is Jesus. Then Paul uses another word. 
The redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Kevin, what in the world is propitiation? Well, to propitiate, I challenge you to use that, use that word this week. Impress your friends. Win friends, influence people. Use the word propitiate. To, to propitiate means to appease or satisfy someone's wrath. To appease or satisfy someone's wrath. And so, uh, religiously, of course, this term... I mean, this is, you could argue that this term is the basis of all religion everywhere all over the planet. People have been using sacrifices to propitiate the gods for as long as there have been humans. Whether that's produce, whether that's animals, whether that's human beings. Right? Propitiation has been the hallmark of religion for all of human history. There's something basic that, that, that's almost basic to relating to the gods is I have to propitiate them. I have to satisfy them. Right. If you even still um, if you go to China or India, one of the most, most interesting things is walking into China. Um, this is this is the modern uh, communist state. All religion has been uh, banned or put under state control, right? Because there really is no God. The, the, the official party line of the Communist Party is atheism. And yet, if you walk into any hotel or restaurant, do you know what you're going to see right next to the cash register? A little cat surrounded by money. It's a little God. And you appease it, you propitiate it by throwing your pocket change at it, right? Uh, and I bet if you were to go in the back room, you might find other Small little deities that you would have to propitiate through different sacrificial means. So this, this is not just a Christian term, and it's not just a religious term. Even if you're not religious, even if you wouldn't claim any religion, the, the idea of satisfaction and appeasement is still at work in your life, right? And what, so, for instance, if work is your God, then you just need to work harder. Right to either appease your boss or your own sense of self-worth. If family is your God, then you're going to make sure that you do this for your kids and this for your kids and you provide for them all the right opportunities so that you can appease them or your cultural expectations or whatever you think it means to be a parent. Right? So we live in this world of appeasement and satisfaction. Whether you're religious or non-religious, the idea of propitiation is alive and well in our world. So this idea is not as foreign, maybe, as it sounds at first. But here's how Christianity is different from all of those other uh, notions, religious and non-religious, right? In all, in all other worldviews, the gods or fate or the universe or Mother Nature... In all other worldviews, whatever your power is, it's inconsistent. Right? If you look through the long category of world religions, you're going to find gods or a god, but mostly gods, multiple. That's why you have multiple. Some are good, some are bad. But they're inconsistent. You don't really know quite what to expect. So if, I, if I, I'm making this sacrifice just hoping against hope that the volcano is not going to blow up on me. But then the volcano blows up. So did I not make the right sacrifice? Right? So in all other worldviews, whether religious or irreligious, the gods are inconsistent. The universe is inconsistent. Mother nature is inconsistent. I 
am inconsistent. But the Bible goes out of its way to show how consistent God is. How just God is. How holy God is. He is always consistent. He is always good. He is always holy. He always does what is just and good. Which means this. That when we talk about God's wrath. God's wrath does not mean God flying off the handle in a rage. Like I'm prone to do. No, God's wrath is his right response to sin and evil in the world. That is what wrath is. Wrath is a right response to evil in the world. And if you and I are to survive, wrath must be satisfied. God's wrath must be appeased. It must be propitiated. And so, so here's the glory of the gospel. God satisfies his own wrath. God appeases his own wrath by putting forward his son as the satisfier. I love the way John Stott puts it. God does not love us because Christ died for us. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. God's love comes first. It's not as if Jesus kind of had to step in there and say, Hey, hey, Father, hey, listen, I know they've done wrong. I'm going to satisfy them. You can love them. It's going to be okay. That's not how it works. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. If it is God's wrath that needs to be propitiated, it is God's love that did the propitiating. Propitiation focuses on our being subject to God's wrath, and rightfully so, and God's grace is that which satisfies His wrath. Alright? So, that is God's solution to our unsolvable problem. Redemption through appeasement by Jesus Christ. God puts forward His Son to appease wrath and redeem us so that we are made right. So that we are justified. And here's, here's at least one thing that that means. It means that salvation is more than forgiveness. If you ask probably any child in this room or any of you, like if you've spent, you know, three weeks in church and one of those weeks being vacation Bible school, you can say, why did Jesus have to die so that we could be forgiven? And that's true, but it's not all the truth. Salvation is more than forgiveness. I need to be forgiven and I need a right record. I need to be forgiven and I need someone else's righteousness to fall in place of my own. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. I don't just need forgiveness, I need a perfect record. Jesus gives me both. That is God's solution. It's what God gives us in Christ. And so that brings us to our last point. How do we lay hold of this? How do we get hold of this Solution. And the answer, back in verse 22, the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 26. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right? Let's define the word faith. We live in the... Christ-haunted South, as Flannery O'Connor would call it. And so uh, words like faith have kind of lost their meaning. They're devoid of, you know, they're not containers that we can make much sense of anymore because they don't mean much. They're so overused. So faith is not a blind leap off a cliff, right? Faith is not me crossing my fingers and just hoping this is going to work out. It's not faith. Nor is faith uh, simply a religious thing. Right. We actually exercise faith, whether you are a religious person or not, you exercise faith a million different ways every day. When I plug my phone into the wall, I have faith that electricity is coming from the power plant over the power lines through the transformer and into my house, like down the wiring of my house to that outlet and into my phone to charge the battery. When I turn the key in my ignition, I am exercising faith that all of those really complex parts that all of you understand so much better than me are all going to work together, right? The battery's going to do its thing. The engine's going to do its thing. The alternator, the yada, 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 right? All those things are going to work together, and my car is going to get me from point A to point B. I have faith, some of you have less faith than others in this, right, that the city of Clanton is going to provide me with clean water, right? Every time I turn on the tap, it's really interesting. Again, when we were in China, um, it's not safe to drink the water in China. Not even the Chinese drink the water in China. Most places in the world, that's true, right? People don't drink the water out of the tap. They drink bottled water. And so I remember having, a, having an argument, really. This kid was arguing with me that with a Chinese college student. When I told him that I could drink water out of the tap, he just called me a liar. Because he had never... He, had, he knew that was misplaced faith on his part, right? If he, if he did that, He was going to be hurting, right? But I can do that in most parts of the United States without fear. I have faith that the system works. So faith is not... Faith means to trust. If you're going to replace the word faith, which has become so generic with another word, replace it with trust. To have faith is to trust in someone or something. And so faith is not a work, right? Faith is not the clenched hand saying, all right, now we're going to knuckle down and do it. That takes us back to sola bootstrappa, right? Faith is the open hand. Faith is the receiving hand that says, give me, give me Jesus's work. And it's important to say this. The strength of your faith is not what saves you. You can have strong faith in a weak object And you're in trouble, right? I right now am exercising faith that this stage will support my weight plus the weight of the piano and the pulpit and all this other stuff. However, termites could have eaten all of the wood underneath this. It's happened, right? And in that case, my confident assurance and faith in this platform not collapsing would be misplaced. And down I would go and with a piano on top of me, right? So, faith, it can be confident and it can be strong, but if it's placed in the wrong object, it's over, right? Faith can be misplaced. It's not the strength of the faith. 
Instead, it is far better to have a weak faith in a strong object. When I was in college during the summers, I worked at a, uh, at a summer camp, and uh, one of the jobs I held there was the, I was the ropes director. My job was to oversee the climbing tower. And one of, uh, if, you're, if you're a normal human being, usually when you get about, I don't know, when your feet get about five to seven, eight feet off the ground, right, gravity becomes more of a reality to you at that point than it ever has in your life, right? All of a sudden, you get a little bit high up in the air, and you're like, whoa, right? And so part of, part of what we would do when people would start climbing up this tower, and inevitably they would start freaking out, was, right, we would, we would lock the, I'm the belayer, so I would just lock the rope off behind me because I've got a device hooked to my harness that actually stops the rope, right? This rope can hold up a school bus. Um, so I just, I just break the rope, right? I hold the rope back, and I tell the person on the wall to sit back, right? And nine times out of ten, a person would get so, uh, just, a, just about, about their height off the ground, and you're seeing their arms shake, right? Their legs are starting to turn to jelly. They're saying things that they probably shouldn't say out loud. And, and you just tell them, sit back. Sit back into the harness and, and trust the harness and the carabiners and the pulleys and the rope. Trust the system to work. Because if you will, if you will live in that trust, climbing will be a whole lot more fun. Right? There will be, there's a, there's a whole lot more freedom if you live in that trust. If you live in that faith. Now, again, your faith doesn't make the rope work. And that's my point. Faith does not make Jesus work. Faith, any more than faith in that harness or faith in that rope put it to work. It was going to work either way. Alright? The system's going to work. You're just trusting it more. And in the same way, your faith does not save you. It is faith in Jesus that saves you. And even more specifically, it is faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross that saves you. So it's not the strength of your faith. It is the object in which you place that faith. It's not how much you trust, but what you're trusting in. That is how we receive God's gift of salvation. That's how we get made right with God. Again, uh, in Luther's day, Rome would say you're made right by performing a certain set of duties. And yet Martin could never really be free of that. And you and I can't be free of that either. We run afoul of the scriptures that say by works of the law, no one will be made right with God. No, the righteous will live by faith. And that's not just the beginning of the Christian life. That's all the way through the Christian life. But that's a whole other sermon. Let me close with these words from uh, Christian author Jerry Bridges. Faith involves both a renunciation and a reliance. First, we must renounce any trust in our own performance as the basis of our acceptance before God. We trust in our own performance when we believe we've earned God's acceptance by our good works. But we also trust in our performance when we believe we've lost God's acceptance by our bad works, by our sin.
So we must renounce any consideration of either our bad works or our good works as the means of relating to God. Second, we must place our reliance entirely on the perfect obedience and sin-bearing death of Christ as the sole basis of our standing before God. On our best days as well as our worst Friend, how can a sinner be made right with a holy God? By receiving and resting upon Christ alone. On your best days and on your worst. That's the good news. Do you believe it? Let's pray. God in heaven, so much we could say about...